0: We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're about to begin verse 12. Last time when we were together, we um, we discussed what is the um, the reason that the Apostle Paul d- writes this chapter, and it it really is, and I wrote some things on the board which I'm not going to do again, but... Um, that idea of dualism, which you just constantly have to keep that in front of you, because the Greco-Roman world, the world to which the New Testament was written, for the most part, uh, is a very dualistic world. Material things are evil. Immaterial things, the world of the Spirit is good. That kind of value judgment. So it was inconceivable to them, in their worldview, that God would resurrect the body. They just, that they just—that was extremely difficult for them to process. But as Paul taught, as Paul um, uh, led and planted all these churches, it began to penetrate the Greco-Roman world. And I think I mentioned to you a good place to see this in the New Testament is Acts 17, when Paul is preaching, he's teaching, he's with the philosophers. They're with him. They're they're connecting with him they're shaking their heads in agreement and then the very end of the chapter it says he brings up the resurrection of Jesus and they mock him because the idea of the resurrection is is just it's it's a foreign almost abhorrent idea to them but it tells us in the very last verse of that chapter that some did believe the second thing that we talked about last week is how central the resurrection is to the gospel the gospel is include the resurrection. As a matter of fact, and that's what he says in verse 3 and verse 4, which is the core, central core of the gospel. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And the resurrection is so central because it, it validates that the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted. And the penalty, which was death, had been paid, and God, the Father accepted it, and resurrected him from the dead. It's just, just uh, it's, it's, the, it's the dimension of the gospel that brings change. All right, now, then the final thing we did last week was we looked in verse 5 through, through the end of that paragraph into verse 11. Paul gives a series of, of pieces of evidence for that. And, um, you know, people who don't believe the Bible reject it, but it's one of the most attested events coming out of the ancient world. The number of people who attested to it is, uh, is quite astonishing. All right, now that's a summary, and we spent a lot of time on that last week. But um, verse 12, what the Apostle Paul does here is, is shrewd, but it also is central to what he's trying to do, cause them to confront the reality of the gospel, the reality of the resurrection. And to ponder, what if there were no resurrection? What if Jesus was still in the grave? So he writes in verse 12, Now, if, or you could translate that, since Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, that, again, is the summary of the gospel, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection? Of the dead. And the sum would be the Greeks, the Greco Roman worldview. Many, many, many Greeks taught that. So that's why he's saying it that way. Are you with me? You understand that? He's raising that question. But how can some of you still say that? Now, starting with verse 13, and I've outlined it that way in your notes, it goes from 20 over to the top of page 21. He he speculates on five major consequences if there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Well, that's like, duh. (laughs) You you understand what I mean? Okay, but what's the importance of that? If Christ is... Not has not been raised. What does that mean? It's so simple. you you think, well, he's thinking of something deeper. I'm not. What's the, what's the simple answer to that? It didn't, it didn't happen. Where is Jesus? He's in a grave somewhere in Jerusalem. And it's it's like Paul has just starting in verse 5 and through verse 11, he's given us all these proofs of people that could validate he was resurrected. But Paul's saying, okay, you guys are teaching there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, Jesus is in the grave somewhere. Okay, now, now think about that. If Jesus is still in the grave, what does that mean? We don't
1: have any hope of being resurrected.
0: Okay, there's no hope. There's no hope for us being resurrected. Ultimately,
1: even Paul himself.
0: Exactly.
2: Why
1: is
0: he? Exactly. And kind of what is he doing? Why is he doing what he's doing? And, and theologically it means, and this is really the crux of the argument, theologically it means sin has not been paid for. Death is still binding. Eternal, it's a strong word, but it's the only one to use, eternal damnation is still our destiny. So it's it's like if if you do not believe in the resurrection, then Jesus is still in a grave somewhere in Jerusalem, and goodness, everything else that goes with that teaching is now a lie. It's silly. It's stupid. Second, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. What does the word vain mean? Useless. Useless? empty. so if Christ hasn't been raised then our preaching's in vain. I mean we're saying and standing for and arguing and defending and proclaiming something that is empty. it's silly, it's stupid it, it doesn't have any meaning and in addition to that your faith is in vain. In other words it's a sham. this is a sham. We have been teaching, we have been preaching, we have been living something that is an abject lie, which he's going to dwell on in the next verse. And it's vain. I mean, you're believing something. It's saying something more about you than it is anything else. You stupid person. How could you possibly go out and proclaim something so silly? It's uh, (laughs) It's like the witch doctor, or it's like the guy in... In uh, late 19th century America, who peddled a cure all medicine, you know, drink this and everything will be cured. And, you know, the many people bought into it. But it's a sham. It's such strong, strong language that he's using. And then he goes on, moreover, verse 15, the third effect or third consequence. We are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. And he's simply saying, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Everything that the apostles had been declaring, everything that the apostles have been teaching is a lie. And we have lied, and and he uses the phrase false witness, because it takes you back to the Old Testament. But in effect what he's saying, we are telling you a lie about God. God didn't raise him. It's a lie. And if it's a lie, then Jesus is is still in the grave, and your faith is worthless. and to make it even more profound, you're still in your sins. Nothing's changed. So you see what he's doing? He's He's, he's increasing the pressure intellectually to think through the logical consequences if Jesus is still in a grave somewhere in Jerusalem. This, this idea that is, is so central to these verses 15, 16, and 17 that we are teaching consciously and willingly a lie. We're bearing false witness against God. We're lying <coughs> about God. And therefore, everything is empty, silly, stupid, vain. And to make it even worse, you're still in your sins. All right?
1: What what, uh, impact do you think that would have on the people, his audience, at that time? Just to see the stark contrast of the two...
0: The stark contrast of the two... uh,
1: One believing... Oh, I see. Okay. ...and the resurrection, the other one thinking that then we're just walking around sharing these lies and stories. and I mean, that would seem... Why would you ever do something like that?
0: Well, uh, exactly. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why he uses that word that that we translate as vain. it's, It's so empty and worthless and shallow of any power or importance. And then, as as we've just read, he notches it up a couple and says it's actually a lie, and we've consciously and willfully been proclaiming a lie. A couple of years ago, oh, goodness, it's more like 20, (laughs) I think, but a German um, um, theologian, sort of quasi-theologian, but he wrote a book called The Passover Plot, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it. It's yeah. at least 20 years old or so. But what he argues, it's a really fascinating book. What he argued was, well, this man Jesus and his followers, they studied the Old Testament. And they put together all of the prophecies that the Old Testament said about Messiah, and they contrived it because they said he's going to go to the cross. But he really didn't die on the cross. They resuscitated him. But we didn't know that, because what they did then is they faked his resurrection. I mean, just it was just... But, you know, the one thing he never really dealt with, those guys were believing the truthfulness of the prophecies, you know what I mean, and, con- and contrived it, and it was a plot. But he never dealt with the fact that those prophecies actually were true prophecies. <laughs> but it's, um, it was, it's just what people will do to get around and, and somehow... We love conspiracies, construct a conspiracy uh, that Jesus and his followers engaged in. And, and in then and he said that the Roman soldiers were part of the plot. I mean, it's just uh, it so bizarre. Instead of accepting the fact that this really, really did happen. And, and uh, it's just uh, always interesting what people will do to get around it. Then in verse 18, he becomes very, very personal. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now remember, so frequently in the New Testament, sleep is a metaphor for death. So your parents who had put their faith in Jesus, your brother who had put his faith in Jesus, your close friend who had put his faith in Jesus and died, what's Paul saying? He's perished. And that Greek word means in an absolute in an absolute sense he's dead. No resurrection, no spirit, no soul. He's dead. You will never see him. Never see her. Death has won. Death has the victory. Eternal absolute separation. You will never see that loved one again. I've done many funerals in my life, and the difference between a Christian family and the the, the person who's passed away being a Christian and a family or the person who's passed away not being a Christian is a stark contrast. Because, I mean, it is very hard when I've officiated a funeral, if you know that person, not a believer... And most of the family is not a believer. What in the world do you say? I mean, and I don't mean to, I'm not, I'm not trying to um, in any way be cynical or critical or anything. I'm just saying it's a very difficult situation because how can you give hope? So the only thing I've done, because I don't know have to do it, is I, just, I, I make very little of that individual's life or where they are in terms of, of their eternal state. I focus on the gospel. I focus on you can make a difference. You can, you can still make the decision to trust Jesus as your Savior. This can be an, an eternally significant situation for you. Because uh, it's really hard. I mean, when you really, families are grieving, they're hurting, there's so many things, and so you want to say something that's positive and hopeful, then you just go to the gospel without saying very much about that person's eternal destiny. Because the one I don't know, Ultimately, but it's that's hard as a believer in a, in a family where it's a strong con, uh, commitment to Jesus. It's almost it's almost a celebration. I mean, there's grief and there's tears, but there's a celebration in the sense that you know where that person is, and you know, secondly, that you will see them, that you'll be in eternity with them. It's such a difference. I don't know if you've ever been at the bedside of someone who's a believer and they pass away. It. It's, it's often a very peaceful thing. It's a very um, assuring thing. Now, it isn't always, because obviously some people die of horrible diseases and things like that. But there is a difference when someone who knows the Lord passes away and in the family of someone who knows the Lord. And then the other end of it is, my goodness, so you have to focus on those who are still alive. You can change things. You can make a difference. So. But that's a very, very, very piercing verse, verse 18. Those who have died in Christ, they perished.
2: Jim, could I add yes, to what you just said? Sorry, I didn't it, no, no, no. I, I was at a funeral just last week,
0: Uh-huh.
2: and it was a, a friend from my military days, who so I've known all these years, and we're good friends, but he was not a believer. his family or anyone else there that I know of. Wow. And so they, I was actually at the viewing. They had a viewing, and a, mm-hmm. I don't know what they call it. Anyway, um, they asked people to stand up and say whatever you want. And so I took the opportunity Did you really? Go to do First Corinthians 13. Yeah. And I, I didn't read all of it, but the, the, I forgot.
0: Like verses four through seven, the yeah, yeah. description and, of love there.
2: And you know, said you know this, it changed my life, and it can change your life. Mm. And it was amazing afterward. The number of people that came up to me and said that was a nice talk, or <laughs> so they, they heard what I said. Yeah, yeah. Whether you know who knows, but It's amazing. Yeah. Didn't say anything about how he lived his life. Yes. Yeah. Because
0: it didn't make you know. <sighs> Well, I've I've done a couple where the guy's a real scoundrel. I mean, you just you don't know what to say, you know? and everybody knows he was a scoundrel. But uh, you you, um, you do need to create hope for those who are still alive, and the only way to create hope for those who are still alive is something from the Word of God, in the gospel, uh, uh, ultimately. I was at a you
2: know recently where uh, I, I I would well you know bad but you you doubt yeah. That And yet, the pastor, um, you know, he is in in heaven right now. Mm -hmm. I thought, how can he be so? Say that,
0: yeah. But
2: because what it does is just, you know, passing on a lie that you don't really have to make any. Yeah. Trust Christ. Exactly. You're just, you know, he's going to base it on good works. In fact, they did talk about. Mm -hmm.
0: It is a uh, it is an opportunity to help people who are still living to confront the eternal reality of things, and uh, and I, this is uh, maybe not the best way to put it, but I think it nonetheless true. That is when people spiritually are most vulnerable; they're they're most concerned about things like that. And if you can offer an answer that God's Spirit can use that's how people can come to faith or that is when people can come to faith and I've, I've, I've experienced that so it's uh, in one sense we're on a little bunny, bunny trail here but in another sense we're not because that's really what he's saying here in verse 18 people who have you know that figure of speech that's used in the New Testament who fall asleep in Christ they had put their faith in him they put their faith in his death, burial, and resurrection and it comes out it's a lie, then they perished I mean they're totally gone Totally gone. You'll never see them again. Oh, and, just a
1: point of clarification. Were, did, were people in the church in Harlem uh, that were denying the resurrection? I'm going to just see if anybody wants to. Or something. was it pe- people around them that were denying them?
0: Well, I, I, I'm not sure if I can answer that definitively. The way he puts it in verse um, 12, excuse me, yeah, verse 12, is how is it that some among you say? So, uh, Andrew, it could be those who have come into the church to, you know, test it and experiment with what, what's going on here. I want to find out what's going on, uh, who have not yet made a decision of faith. The you there is plural. So it could also be the broader circle of people in the city of Corinth itself. Because, I, I'm pretty certain on this, the vast majority who people, of people who lived in the city of Corinth at this time were dualists and would have denied the resurrection. So he's, he's perhaps saying it both with some very specific individuals in mind, but the broader Greco-Roman culture. Some of you say.
1: Well, and, and it's, it's- just reminding me of, and I know i brought up this up before, and you're probably tired of me bringing it up, but the story that you shared about the church here in Omaha, where the pastor got up, I think on Easter Sunday. And it was on Easter Sunday. Yeah, and so um, essentially denied the resurrection.
0: Yes, he said, this was a number of years ago now, about seven or eight years ago, he, he said, and I'm going to repeat it because it is, uh, it, it's the most amazing thing I've ever heard, seen a pastor do and it was a fairly prominent church and I got the tape so I know he said it but he stood up and it's Easter Sunday morning and we're here to celebrate the resurrection and we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in our hearts because we in the modern world believe that the literal resurrection of Jesus is something the early church wanted to believe and what they taught but we know that's really not true so we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in our hearts. So what he just said is, the entire Bible is a lie. The entire gospel is a lie. So we, we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in our hearts. And I wanted to, I wasn't there, I got the tape. I just wanted to say to him, what in the world does that mean, the resurrection of Jesus in our hearts? What does that mean? That's an utterly meaningless phrase. And you're asking, you know, there were I would guess 1,300 1, people in that congregation that Sunday morning and heard him say that. And then this is the, the theologian in me. I thought, what is that pastor gonna say when he stands before Christ? What is he gonna say? Because he is defending he is defending a proposition that is counter to everything Christianity. Is. So, thank you. I'm not sure I want to thank you, Andrew, but that's what he was looking at.
2: <laughs>
0: the last verse uh, of this paragraph, verse 19, um, if we had hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of most all men to be pitied. We should be pitied. We just hoped in some, We just hoped in a man in this life only. Everything else about him is not true. We should be pitied. What a what a what a stupid group of people that we believe something like this. That's pretty strong, isn't it? You see what he's done. He's intensified it. Each one of those. It's it's a little higher level of intensity and person, very personal. What are the first two words of verse twenty? But. Now, in the Greek language, that is a very strong adversative. Well, you, you don't know what that means. It's a very strong word of contrast in, in the original language. But now Christ has been raised. You can just hear, he's, if he were preaching, his voice would go up, the inflection, you know, his hands, the gestures. You know, I don't know if Paul gestured. I don't know if he did. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. All of the logical consequences of him still being in the grave are false. He has been raised. And it takes you back to um, verses uh, 5 through 11, where he gives all the testimony and witnesses and evi- evidence for this historic fact, as well as this profound truth. Listen, and I know I'm speaking in a sense to the choir here, but the resurrection is the central element of the gospel. And I, it, it, this gives you an indication, this is when I was a young buck, but I was going through my ordination, and it was back in Pennsylvania, where I'm from, and I, uh, I don't know if you know what an ordination is. It's it's uh, it's an attempt to destroy a young man. That's really what it is.
1: But it's I mean it's it's a
0: very rigorous and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I mean it's really a very very good thing to to to, to put a perspective pastor to. But anyway, you have to write out your doctrinal statement, and all that. Then you stand before a whole bunch of elders and other leaders of the church, and usually there are others that they bring in. And for mine, it was about thirty-five people uh, that were there, and they're all asking me questions. And it was three and a half hours long. <laughs> but very early. Uh, it, was, it just reminds me, because I, I, I was so nervous. It was right at the beginning, and I was a young guy. And the one of the men said, uh, Jim, summarize the gospel for us. So I went, he went through the death and Jesus and all of that. But I didn't use the word <laughs> resurrection. Because I was, I, was, I was so nervous. And then he smiled after I was done speaking for about a minute and a half. He said, oh, when that Jim, you do want to add the resurrection, don't you? <laughs> and it was just, you know, here I'm this young guy. I, was, I swallowed and I said, oh, my, of course. And then I quoted 1 Corinthians 15. But it was just, you know, so nervous. But he, he, he's absolutely right to call me on that. Because if you just have Jesus' death on the cross and his burial, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That doesn't validate that he paid the price for our sins. That doesn't validate that his blood that You've got to have the resurrection. So anyway, it was just, I've never forgotten that. And whenever I say it, I'm always so categorical. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because that is the gospel. And what Paul has does, just done. Now, what we see in verse 20... 21 and 22 is some theology here it's some important doctrinal truths that's tying a lot of the stuff of all the Bible together Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep now again sleep is a metaphor for death but what does first fruits mean?
1: He was the first one to actually taste death from the crucifixion going forward in time. Others have been called to God, but not through the death of Jesus Christ, perhaps.
0: You're leaving it out. Just like I did in my ordination,
1: <laughs> the resurrection.
0: <laughs> yes, he's the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits of what? Of those who will be resurrected. Right. He is the first one to get the glorified, resurrected body, and live, and, forever. And live forever. But I mean, it's the first and, um, and Maybe some of you aren't familiar with some of that, but in the Old Testament, the, the Jewish people would bring a first fruits offering which was always in autumn, you know, the, 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 the harvest has occurred, and the first fruits you bring to the Lord, you bring to the temple. Well, and, I mean, we, I mean, we often talk about that in, in agricultural communities. This is the first fruit of the harvest. This is the very first thing. This is the first pumpkin. This is the first corn. This, you know, whatever it is that you're... And so he's using that language. Jesus is the first one. Why is that so important? Verse 21 for since by a man came death who's the man adam so also by a man came the resurrection of the dead who's that jesus what you see in the in in the, in the scriptures the contrast between adam and christ paul speaks in romans 5 of jesus being the second adam that he he overcomes and is victorious over what the first Adam brought about, sin, death, and and judgment. Then he expounds on that a little bit further in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now listen, this is a hard truth, but everyone is going to be resurrected from the dead. I did not say everyone will go to heaven. Everyone will be resurrected from the dead. Those who will be resurrected and will enter the kingdom and enter the eternal state, and those who will be resurrected to be judged and cast into the lake of fire. That's in, in the end of Revelation 20, the great white throne. So I mean, that's that's for everybody will be resurrected. All right. That's just a little bit of theology. I don't think that's hard, what he's doing. But now, he he does something that there's no other place in Scripture where we see it. And I believe, don't, in the next page, page, I don't know what that is, 22. Don't you have something like this, I hope? On the next page, yeah, good, okay. I want to take a look at that, because this is an attempt to graph out on a timeline what he's going to tell us in verse 23 and following. Okay? Now, we learned in verse 20 that Jesus is the first fruit, the first one to be resurrected. Now, before Christ, there were several that had been resuscitated. I'm being a little specific there. Lazarus was not resurrected, right? Because Lazarus died again. You know, Jesus brought him back to, to life. There are a couple of individuals in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, Enoch comes to mind. Elijah comes to mind. They didn't. They didn't literally die. They were taken to heaven, but they st- they don't have their glorified resurrected body. Moses was buried, and and God took him. So Jesus is at first fruits. But then you read in verse twenty three. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. So you have. On the timeline, right after the cross, you have Jesus. After that, those who are at Christ, those who are at Christ at His coming. That's, that's the next arrow where the arrow going down and going up, that's what First Thessalonians chapter four calls the rapture. I'm not here getting into the debate of when that occurs. You can't say I don't believe in a rapture. That's a biblical teaching. The issue is not the rapture, the issue is the timing when that occurs. But for now we're just leaving that aside. I want to deal with that. But the second stage, if you will, is when Jesus comes back for his church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive shall be caught up to ever be with him to be with the Lord. And so that's the second stage. Then very important time marker. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom of the God of God to God, to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So then at his coming, as his, this is at his second coming, which again, that's the arrow going down. His second coming, Zechariah 14, Matthew 24, he will come back to the Mount of Olives. And then that begins to usher in the end which, again, some of the timeline and and things that are on that little timeline that you have in front of you uh, deals with some other things that are taught in other parts of the scriptures. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, verse 25 is generally understood by most to be that kingdom that Christ establishes, that Revelation 20 tells us is a thousand years. And he reigns. Everything is brought under his subjection. And he is, verse 27, he's put all things in subjection under his feet. All things are put in subjection. It's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Boy, there's a bunch of wordy. What he's saying is, Jesus the Son... Submitted to God the Father, came to earth, died, was resurrected, rules in his name, then delivers everything up to the Father. And the end comes. The new heaven and the new earth comes. Now that's all in those very wordy verses of verse 27 and 28. And Paul, it's very brief, it's very short, it's very pithy. He's laid out a timeline of the resurrection first one's Jesus, then everyone who's alive when Christ comes back, the dead in Christ, for the rapture, then at his second coming, and then the rest of, uh, the, rest of, of the working out of the end time. I, 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 I'm trying to stay away from getting into a lot of the details of the end time. That's not the main point of this. I guess if you really, 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 really want to go down a bunny trail, we'll do it, but What is really important and central to this is Jesus starts the resurrection process. Resurrection of Jesus is the first fruit, followed by the resurrection of those when he comes back for his church, followed by the resurrection of those when he comes back to earth at his second coming. Okay? Okay? Now, we're going to read later on in this chapter, he's going to describe the nature of the resurrection, the nature of the resurrection body. But let me stop now, and I want to go into the next (coughs) section. But are you with me? Do you have any questions? This uh, This is kind of deep theology here. It's some theological teaching, but it's very, very important. So your silence means understanding. Was it
2: common to use this type of argument at that time <coughs> to kind of give you the, okay? You don't believe what I'm telling you. Let's 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 look at it from a different
0: angle. Mm-hmm. Was that common? It uh, was. Uh, for, uh,
1: it was. Uh, right like that was just something unusual. No,
0: this was very common. Um, it's it's well, um, uh, I'm trying to not use the. Uh, words of logic. This is a system of argumentation that Aristotle developed. And so, I mean, he's um, you know, he starts off, Here is the, here are the logical reasons with the evidence of why he was resurrected. But let me consider it from another angle. Let's logically consider, what if he were not resurrected? What would be the consequences? But now, we know he has been resurrected, the proofs for his resurrection far outweigh anything else that's been said. Now, what are the consequences of that? And the consequences of that is it starts a whole sequence of God's plan. But it's based on that premise that the resurrection is true. I've proved it positively. I proved it negatively. We now know it's true. Now, what are the what what are the implications of this for you and for me? Jesus is the first of a whole untold multitude of human beings who will be resurrected. And he doesn't go any further than that. You have to go to some other parts of the Scripture to get some of the details of what's all on this timeline. But it's, uh, yeah, so the answer to your question is that's, that's the, the, the Greeks who are reading this, the Greco-Roman people who are reading this would understand what he's doing. They're very clear what he's doing. All right, any other questions?
1: Could you explain 29?
0: We didn't get to twenty nine yet. I'm skipping twenty nine. I'm not going to deal with twenty nine. <laughs> no, we'll deal with twenty nine in a minute. But so, I mean, do you, do you understand what he's done now? I mean, this is uh, he has been very shrewd in how he's been presenting this doctrine. Now, verse twenty nine through the end of this paragraph, through verse 34. What does the resurrection mean for us practically? What are, what, are the, what are the practical implications of this? We have something to look forward to. We have something to, look forward to. And it, it, it should affect, <coughs> um, given that it's true, it should affect everything you do. Now, Fred... I was hoping I could just skip 29 and no one would notice that I skipped it. But verse 29 is probably, singularly as a verse, the most difficult verse in the Bible. Because, quite frankly, we don't know what he's talking about. There are something like 400 interpretations of this. Because, okay. uh, I mean, it's, he's saying something that presumably they would have understood what he meant. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they being baptized for them? Now, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints builds their entire practice of searching out their genealogies and going back as far as they possibly can and then going into the baptismal pools, and being baptized for all of their relatives. And I don't know. Uh, before they opened the one uh, that uh, temple up uh, off the of thirtieth Street, I was invited to go in, and and tour it because now you really can't get in there and see everything in in the building. But in that, have you ever seen it? It's a beautiful white building. I mean, it's actually a very, very attractive building. But anyway, you go in. And then you go to the baptismal. It's a massive baptismal. And as you start down the steps, they have a little computer there. And what you can do is you put your thumb drive in with all of your relatives that you've searched out, and then you're individually baptized for every one of them. Because they're saying, what he is teaching here is, I can be baptized in the place of my relatives, and therefore they're saved. And so they, um, I I, I don't mean this unkindly, but they obsess about this. And that's why the the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has has developed some of the best genealogical search engines there are. And you can tap into them uh, online if you pay a fee. It's amazing what you can find about your family. But they've done that because this is what they believe this is teaching. So if that, if that is true, then that is a teaching that is nowhere else found in the Bible. That all my dead relatives, I can be baptized for them in their place.
2: The word otherwise points out the fact that what he has been talking about
0: has nothing to do with this because this is false i i think so this is heretical daryl i mean this is a heretic if that's how we're interpreting that's heretical because there's no there is no other place where that's that's taught um, and it, listen it there's probably i think it's is accurate to say this there's no particular position of how to understand this that virtually everybody buys into. It's very difficult. So is Paul being cynical here? Well, those of you who think that is true, and if that's what you... And there is no resurrection, you're doing something even more stupid. But that doesn't seem to fit. So he must be referring... What One of the positions I find most comfortable is that... Um, as people come to Christ and they 're baptized, which you know that is the public identification public testimony it 's simply you are the new generation that 's replacing the older ones who have died, and it 's just a symbolic evidence of that you, you follow what i 'm saying, so that it 's just how generation after generation passes on new leaders, new converts the old the older generation is dying off, being replaced by newer ones that are baptized and so that to me seems the most reasonable way to understand that. Instead of it being a widely practiced ritual, there's just we have no evidence of this in the New Testament. We certainly have no evidence of it in extra biblical material. So it seems that it's something in that area. It's like the next generation is replacing the older generation. And that, that uh, the ordinance of baptism is just indicative of that. that it's just you're passing it on. But the language of it is very, very, very difficult. So whatever is going on there, Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, that's a silly thing to do. It's a silly ritual. It's a silly way to look at it. So th- that's all I have to say about that, as Forrest Gump so eloquently stated. Verse 30, 31, and 32. Why are we also in danger of our hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If for human motives I forgot, fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and tomorrow we, for tomorrow we die. Do you understand what he's saying? We daily face danger and suffering. If the truth of the gospel is not real, then let's just buy into what everybody else is doing. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There are no consequences of how we live. Just live it up. Now, see, he's, being, he's being eminently practical there. And for, for so many in our postmodern world, That's where they're at in 2014. I don't really know if I believe a lot of what you're saying. Life is all about me. The universe revolves around me. My philosophy is eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to get the most out of life I can possibly get for tomorrow I die. And then it's all over. See what Paul's doing? Why do we endure suffering? Why do we endure danger? Because there is a resurrection. The gospel is true. If the gospel is a lie, then it really doesn't matter how I live. Isn't that true? I mean, man, listen. If the gospel of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is not true, then the logical alternative, hey, let's, let's, let's grab it all now because when we die that's it which is one of the real challenges for the atheistic naturalist if death is the finality and there's therefore no accountability then why does it matter how i live my life you see what i'm saying it really does. it's it's a it's a profound thought if death is it that's it and there's no accountability for how i live and it doesn't matter how i live what's the basis for ethics What's the basics for moral living? As a matter of fact, there's no accountability. Why in the world do I do? Let's just eat and drink and be merry. Let's live it up. let you know that. What was that old beer commercial? You only go around once, or something like that. And it's just it's, that's the philosophy of verse thirty-two B. If there is no death, burial, and resurrection, it's a lie. Let's enjoy everything. Let's maximize. Let's maximize this life because that's all there is. And Paul is saying, it's not all there is. I endure suffering. I endure danger because the gospel's true. And then he concludes, it's an exhortation to righteous living. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God I speak this to your shame. It is not true to eat, drink and be merry. Don't be deceived and this is a saying. Bad company corrupts good morals. <laughs> Isn't that a good saying? It's that's true. Paul we we don't know who he's quoting there. We really he's quoting somebody we're not sure who that is. But it's don't be deceived. Eat, drink, and be merry is not a slogan by which to live your life. Don't be deceived. Because that kind of teaching will corrupt good moral. So be sober-minded. Be wise. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is true. It should be a motivation Living your life righteously. All right. We did it. I wanted to get to verse 34, and we got there. But are you with me? I mean, is, are you you're following this line of argument that he's developing? It is a very powerful argument. And it's the best, as I've told you this a couple of times now, this is the best defense of the literal bodily resurrection there is in the Bible. This chapter. It is the definitive place to start. You have the presentation of it, you have the evidence for it, you have the logical consequences of it's a lie, and you have how it affects how we live our lives. Now next week he starts talking about what's the nature of the body that's resurrected. So that's... We'll deal with it next week. So you are with me. Your silence means you've got it. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yes. How? Any update on Woody?
1: Yeah, he, he called me yesterday, and uh, he said he's just uh, still struggling a little bit with his health and uh, the tests that we talked about last time with the camera. Yes. Yes. Proven out to be no problem that they can identify. Oh, wow, good. So he's he's coming back, but. The, he said it's a slow road.
0: So they really they they don't know why he was hemorrhaging.
1: Oh my Nothing. goodness. Mm-hmm.
0: But is he feel I mean is he feeling uh, better he's or it's
1: better than his body because you know we laughed a little bit, but uh, he's he's weak
0: and yeah, he's been through so been through quite a bit. Well, wow. okay. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray here. Father, we're grateful for this passage of Scripture. This is, um, it is one of the central portions of the 66 books of the Bible on the resurrection. It is uh, comprehensive. And Lord, it's so uh, wonderful in many ways that we can be studying this on the eve of the celebration of the resurrection, Easter, in a couple of weeks. It's very appropriate because this is, Lord, this is the central truth of what we believe. If there is no resurrection, uh, we believe the lie, and it's, it's, it's vain, and it's silly for us to believe this. But if it's true, it is the most important message for the human race to hear. Everything rises and falls on this being true. It's, the witnesses for it are, are indeed uh, significant. The change and transformation is inexplicable if it's not true. And it dramatically impacts how we live our lives. Father, this is part of the promise you've made to us, that there is coming a day when what Jesus received, that glorified resurrected body, we will receive. And we will talk about that next week. That is an important promise. We hold on to that. In many ways, that is one of the central points of our hope, that expectancy with desire, that you return. And this is part of fulfilling that immensely important promise you've made to us. We think of Woody today. um, We're we're grateful that they didn't find any physical problems that are causing this. I I think it certainly is is good news. But he's weak physically. I pray for him in terms of his attitude. I pray for him in terms of his spirit. I ask you to encourage and comfort him today. Uh, Lord, I ask that uh, if it would be pleasing to you that you would indeed strengthen his body, renew his body. Uh, he's been through so much. It's massive, massive surgery, of, uh, one of the most complex surgery that there is. And he survived, and he's on the road to recovery. God, strengthen him each day. And our prayer would be that you would restore him to full health if that is pleasing to you. We, we give him to you. We trust him to you. Indeed, we abandon him to you and believe that you're at work in his life by faith. Give us all a good rest of this day. It's a, it's a beautiful spring day that you've created. Thank you for sharing it with us. Now help us in our lives to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. And the Lord willing, we'll see you next week.